and welcome to Based, Based on a True Crime Story, a podcast where each of us will talk about a true crime event and then the movie that was inspired by it. I am one of your hosts, Andrea. And I am your other host, Kelly. And this week, I'm going to go first. Yay! First the worst. First the worst. Second the best. <laughs> Third's the turd. Third's the turd. Um, so this week I chose the story of Bernie TD and the movie that it inspired called Bernie, starring Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine. Oh, is this um he was like a um church figure or whatever? Or a play? funeral home director. Okay. Yeah. So probably actually one of my favorite uh movies that Jack Black is in because it's very Jack Black, but different than anything Jack Black's usually in. I enjoy it immensely it's a good movie um my uh references this week are from a an eight minute listen from npr called truth is stranger than fiction it goes over the case that's from may of 2012 the best title of an article from the new york times called how my aunt marge ended up in the deep freeze <laughs> by joe rhodes and that also appeared in the new york times magazine in april of 2012 Wikipedia, and also um, Bernie T.D. was the subject of a 48 Hours episode called The Mortician, The Murder, and The Movie, basically outlining his crime as well as his brief re-entry into society before his resentencing. So we start off with uh, Bernhard T.D. II, who is the son of Bernhard T.D., um, was a native of Oldlin, now Russia, previously the Ukraine. He was of German descent who had immigrated with his family to the United States in 1926. Bernhard T.D. Sr. had served as a professor of music and choral direction at Our Lady of the Lake College, now Our Lady of the Lake University, in San Antonio, Texas during the 40s, and at Southern Methodist University in Dallas from the 40s to the 50s. Um, let's see, also at Kildor College and then at McMurray College in Abilene, where he had served as the director of the McMurray Chanters, which was a position that he held until his death. The senior TD um, auditioned to his work as a university professor. Um, he also served as a church music director as well as vocal performer. Uh, Bernie's mother um, was the senior TD's first wife, Leela Mae Jester. They were married in 1957, and Bernie was born the next year. Bernie's mother died in an automobile accident, though, when he was two years old. And in 1963, his father married Clara Wiley, who became Bernie's stepmother. Bernie's father died in Abilene, Texas, when Bernie was 15. And then Bernie graduated from Cooper High School in Abilene, Texas in 1976. So Bernie met um, Marge Nugent in March of 1990 at her husband's funeral. And uh, Bernie helped assist um, at the Hawthorne Funeral Home. The two became like inseparable. They were total BFFs. In 1991, Marge altered her will and disinherited her son and left her entire $10 million fortune to Bernie. By 1983, Bernie had then left his job um, at the funeral home to work for her full-time as her business manager and travel companion. In November of 1996, Bernie killed Marge by shooting her in the back four times with a 22 rifle. He then placed her body in a freezer used to store food at her Carthage home. According to the Amarillo Globe News, 
Marge Nugent's estranged son, Amarillo pathologist Rod Nugent, had traveled from Amarillo to Panola County nine months after her death, where he declared Nugent a missing person. After entering Marjorie's residence, Rod and his daughter found his mother's body in the freezer wrapped in a white sheet. Bernie was taken in for questioning, and he admitted that he murdered Marge um, in August of 1997. Bernie stated that after the murder, he cleaned the body and placed her body into the freezer. And after this, he admits that he had given gifts to several friends in Carthage using Marge's money, which she had previously given him power of attorney to use. A jury sentenced Bernie Teedy to 50 years in prison for Marge's murder. Um, Bernie appealed the sentence. And the appellate courts ruled that there was sufficient evidence for the jury to have found premeditation. So Bernie filed a post-conviction writ of habeas corpus in which he alleged that his constitutional rights were violated in the first trial because of newly discovered evidence. He also alleged in the writ that the 80-year-old March was controlling, emotionally, and verbally abusive towards him, driving him to commit the murder. And because he was in such a disassociative state brought on by years of sexual abuse from his uncle, the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals approved the writ. And according to the deceased strange son, Rod Nugent, Bernie alienated... Any related to Ted? No. Oh. No, 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 no. According to the deceased strange son, Rod, Bernie alienated Marge from her family, friends, and the business associates of her late husband. Rod told the Globe News that it appears that this Bernie TD kind of systematically estranged my mother from all of these people at one time. At some point, they all became angry with my mother. When interviewed, Panola County, Texas District Attorney Danny Buck Davidson said that the town of Carthage was split up in regards to their opinion of Bernie. Davidson told the Longview News Journal that people remember him as being really nice and doing nice things, and they'd like my office to go real easy on him. And then there's this other group that wants no mercy. Bernie was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. Rod Nugent filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Bernie, claiming that he had embezzled more than $3 million from Marjorie's um, estate. Shortly after entering the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in 1999, Bernie was attacked by fellow inmates and during his imprisonment, he was described by prison officials as a model prisoner. He was teaching health classes and he was participating in the prison's choir. He had been until May of 2014 serving a life sentence. However, District Attorney Danny Buck Davidson and visiting Judge Diane Vasto of Tyler, Texas, allowed him to be released from his life sentence on a $10,000 bail after the appeals attorney for the case, Jody Cole, discovered that Bernie had been sexually abused as a child for years. Uh, Jody Cole had theorized that Bernie had shot Marjorie while in a brief disassociative episode brought on by the abusive relationship with Marjorie, a theory that, backed by, that was backed by forensic psychiatrist Richard Pesikoff. It had also been suggested that Bernie's handwritten confession, a major factor in the murder being considered first degree, was heavily influenced by threats of leaking private videotapes of Bernie Teedy. When he was presented with the new evidence, Buck Davidson agreed that he had known this information in the original trial. Had he known this information in the original trial, he would have sought a lighter sentence. Marjorie's family heard about the release through the media reports. Her granddaughter, 
um, expressed shock that the release was granted and claimed that Richard Linkletter's 2011 film, Bernie, had influenced the legal system. The Nugent family created a website to honor Marjorie's memory, posting photos of her and articles relating to her murder. Between the time of his release in 2014 and his resentencing in 2016, Bernie resided in Austin, Texas, in filmmaker Richard Linkletter's garage apartment, which was a condition of his release. So weird. Um, the resentencing trial began on April 6th of 2016. Um, during the resentencing trial, Marjorie's granddaughter, Shanna, spoke directly to Bernie, saying that you are nothing to me. Shanna and Rod Nugent both asserted that Marjorie was, in fact, a kind woman on good terms with her family, unlike the film's portrayal, whom T.D. had conned to spend her fortune without her knowledge. This also differs greatly from other witnesses' testimony, as Gregg County Commissioner Daryl Primo testified in a conversation that he had had with Marjorie between 1991 and 1996 that she spoke well of Bernie's spending, stating that I'll spend every dime of my money before I leave it to my family. Additionally, Meryl Rhodes, Marjorie's sister, spoke of the feelings towards her sister, saying, I was always afraid of her. I never forgot that she was my sister, and I always loved her as my sister, actually, even when she did ugly things, and she did do those ugly things. Joe Rhodes attested to the movie's accurate portrayal and mentioned several acts of his aunt's abuse towards him in the New York Times article, How My Aunt Marge Ended Up in Deep Freeze. Despite this, on April 22nd, uh, 2016, a jury of 10 women and two men deliberated and issued a new sentence of 99 years or life for T.D. After three weeks of testimony, the, jur the jurors had deliberated for just over four hours. A week after his resentencing, his lawyers filed an appeal to the court's decision, and in June of 2016, the 1997 theft charge against him was dropped. In August of 2017, uh, the Texas Appeals Court upheld the 99-year prison sentence. And as of now, in 2020, he's being held at the Connolly Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in Kennedy, Texas. And he is not eligible for parole until 2029. So the movie, Bernie, which stars Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine. Oh, and Matthew McConaughey is the uh, district attorney, Buck uh, Davidson. <laughs> um, it was directed by Richard Linkletter, who is the director of Boyhood, School of Rock, and Dazed and Confused. So he's got some repeats in there. Yeah. Um, so it is um, considered a dark comedy, and it stars Jack Black as Bernie. Um, it is based on a 1998 Texas Monthly Magazine article written by Skip Hollinsworth, Midnight in the Garden of East Texas. That Why does that name sound familiar to me? Skip Hollinsworth? Yeah. I don't know. I didn't look him up, I guess. I'm sorry. The movie is based on a 1998 Texas Monthly Magazine article by Skip Hollinsworth, Midnight in the Garden of East Texas, that chronicled the 1996 murder of Marjorie by her 39-year-old companion, Bernie. Bernie proved so highly regarded in Carthage, Texas, that in spite of his confession to the police, the district attorney was eventually forced to request a rare prosecutorial change of venue in order to get an impartial jury. The film received critical acclaim for its direction and accuracy to the real-life event, the town gossip element, and the particular praise for Matthew McConaughey's performance, as well as Jack Black's portrayal of Bernie, many calling it his final performance to date. Did you figure out where Skip Hollinsworth was from? Yeah, he. they interviewed him on an episode of uh, Criminal uh, oh. about a 
bank robber in Texas. He wrote oh. an article about a bank robber in Texas who dressed up as a man, but was actually a woman. Oh, so. I think I remember listening to that. Um, some IMDb trivia. The owners of the Hawthorne Funeral Home in Carthus, Texas, where Bernie T.D. met Marjorie Nugent, refused to allow the film to use the name of the funeral home. And parts of the movie, such as the airport and the barbecue restaurant, were filmed in Smithville, Texas, which is the same place that Hope Floats with Sandra Bullock was filmed. Real residents of Carthage, Texas, um, who knew the real Bernie and Marjorie, appear in the film providing commentary on the events. And Matthew McConaughey's own mother makes a cameo in the film as one of the residents in the town. Hey. Hey, uh, good movie. You should check it out. Yes, with all of my free time. <laughs> that cuts into my drinking time. Can't uh, you multitask? No. Mm-mm. I read somewhere where if you multitask, that just means you're not giving your attention to it. You're not giving your full attention to any one particular thing. Whatever. <laughs> all right. So mine is going to be long and deep because i am covering stop it we're not going to say that because i am covering the central park five. Oh damn yeah uh and the movie when they see us there's been a couple of documentaries about it i think there's even an opera um based off of it but i am going to talk about uh ava duviernes i think that's how you pronounce her last name uh when they see us so we're just going to kind of get right in. So at 9 p.m. on April 19th, 1989, a group of an estimated 30 to 32 teenagers who lived in East Harlem. Oh, sorry. Let me start over. I got uh, a lot of this from Wikipedia. Uh, they actually have a very good in-depth article about it. Uh, I also watched the documentary uh, called The Central Park Five by the burns it's a i was gonna say i think that's a ken burns yes um yes series yep that's actually how i first well nope i won't even i'll I'll talk about that later at 9 p.m on april 19th 1989 a group of an estimated 30 to 32 teenagers who lived in east harlem entered manhattan central park at an entrance in harlem near central park north some of the group committed several attacks assaults and robberies against people who were either walking biking or jogging in the northernmost part of the park and near the reservoir, and victims began to report the incidents to police. Within the North Woods, between 105th and 102nd Streets, they were reported as attacking several bicyclists, hurling rocks at a cab, and attacking, attacking a pedestrian whom they robbed of his food and beer and left unconscious. The teenagers roamed south along the park's East Drive and the 97th Street Transverse between 9 and 10 p.m. At least some of the group traveled further south to the area around the reservoir where four men jogging were attacked by several youths. Among the victims was John Laughlin, a 40-year-old school teacher who was severely beaten and robbed between 9.40 and 9.50 p.m. He was hit in the head with a pipe and a stick, knocking him briefly unconscious. And at a pretrial hearing uh, in October of 1989, a police officer testified that when uh, Laughlin was found, he was bleeding so badly that he looked like he was dunked in a bucket of blood. The police were dispatched at 9.30 p.m. and responded with scooters and unmarked cars. Through the night, they apprehended about 20 teenagers. They took custody of Raymond Santana, 14, and Kevin Richardson, 14, along with three other teenagers at approximately 10.15 p.m. on Central Park West and 102nd Street. Stephen Lopez, 14, was arrested with this group within an hour of the several attacks that were first reported to police. Trisha Milley was going for a regular run in Central Park shortly before 9 p.m. While jogging in the park, she was knocked down, dragged nearly 300 feet off the roadway, 
and violently assaulted. She was raped and beaten almost to death. About four hours later at 1.30 a.m., she was found naked, gagged, and tied, and covered in mud and blood. In a shallow ravine in a wooded area of the park about 300 feet north of the path called the 102nd Street Crossing. The first policeman who saw her said she was beaten so badly as anybody I've ever seen beaten. She looked like she was tortured. The initial medical prognosis was that Maylie would die of her injuries. She was given last rites, and because of this, the police treated the initial attack as a probable homicide. Maylie was comatose for 12 days. She suffered severe hypothermia, severe brain damage, severe hemorrhagic, I can't say it, severe, how do you say that? Hemorrhagic. hemorrhagic. Yes. Shock. Loss of 75 to 80% of her blood and internal bleeding. Her skull had been fractured so badly that her left eye was dislodged from its socket, which in turn was fractured in 21 places. And she suffered as well from facial fractures. She was then treated for seven weeks in a metropolitan hospital in East Harlem. And when Melee first emerged from her coma, she was unable to talk, read, or walk. In early June, Melee was transferred to Gaylord Hospital, a long-term acute care center in Wallingford, Connecticut, where she spent six months in rehabilitation. She did not walk until mid-July of 1989, and she returned to work eight months after the attack. She largely recovered with some lingering disabilities related to balance and loss of vision. As a result of the severe trauma, she had no memory of the attack or any events up to an hour before the assault, nor of the six weeks following the attack. At the time of concern about crime in general in the city, which was suffering high rates of assaults, I mean, it was a bad time for New York. Um, it was a really bad time. Yeah, high rates of assaults, rapes, and homicides. These attacks provoked great outrage, particularly the brutal rape of the female jogger. It took place in the public park that is mythologized as the city's verdant democratic refuge, New York Governor Mario Cuomo told the New York Post. This is the ultimate shriek of alarm. So about our victim, Patricia Ellen Maley was born on June 24th, 1960 in Paramus, New Jersey. Paramus, New Jersey. Paramus. Yes. And raised in Upper St. Clair, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh. She's the daughter and youngest of three children of John Maley a Westinghouse senior manager, and his wife, Jean, a school board member. She attended Upper St. Clair High School, graduating in 1978. Maylee was a Phi Beta Kappa economics major at Wesley College, where she received a BA in 1982. The chairman of Wesley's economics department said she was brilliant, probably one of the top four or five students of the decade. In 1986, she earned a master's degree from Yale University and an MBA in finance from the Yale School of Management. She worked from the summer of 1986 until the attack as an associate and then a vice president in the corporate finance department and energy group of Salomon Brothers, an investment bank. She lived on East 83rd Street between York and East End Avenues in the Yorkville section of the Upper East Side of Manhattan. At the time of the attack, she was 28 years old. The severely beaten Maylee was not found until 1.30 a.m. on April 20th, and her discovery increased to the urgency of police efforts to apprehend suspects. Antron McCray, 15, Youssef Salam, 15, and Corey Wise, then known as Carrie Wise, 16, were brought in for questioning later that day. After having been identified by other youths in the large group as participants in or present as some of the attacks on other victims, Corey Wise, though, said that he had not been involved at all and only accompanied Salam because they were friends. Like he saw Salam getting into the cop car alone and went with them to the police precinct. 
these were the six suspects indicted for the attack on the female jogger, later identified as Maylee. The police arrested additional suspects over 48 hours after the night of April 19th and interrogated numerous others. Five juveniles, who later became known as the Central Park Five, were interrogated for at least seven hours each before the detectives attempted to record their statements as videotaped confessions. The videotaped confessions were not started until April 21st. Santana, McCray, and Richardson made video statements in the presence of parents. Wise made several statements unaccompanied by any parent, guardian, or counsel. Lopez was interviewed on videotape in the presence of his parents on April 21st, 1989, beginning at 3.30 a.m. He named others of the group by first names in the group attacks on other persons, but denied any knowledge of the female daughter. So this was a, a sixth individual who was involved with the attack on uh, the teacher who was on the bike, um, and he's the one who named them. So that's where they kind of got the information from. So he will be referenced throughout, even though he's not part of the Central Park Five. None of them had defense attorneys during the interrogations or videotape process. When taken into custody, Salam told the police he was 16 years old and showed them ID to that effect. If a suspect has reached 16 years of age, his parents or guardians no longer had a right to accompany him during police questioning or to refuse to permit him to answer any questions. But after Salam's mother arrived at the station, she insisted that she wanted a lawyer for her son and the police immediately stopped the questioning. He neither made a videotape nor signed the earlier written statement, but the court ruled to accept it as evidence before his trial. Salam allegedly made verbal admissions to the police. He confessed to being present at the rape only after the detective falsely told him that fingerprints had been found on the victim's clothing and it had matched his fingerprints and that if it did match, he would be charged with rape. He said years later, I would hear them beating up Corey Wise in the next room and they would come and look at me and say, you realize you're next. The fear made me feel really like I was not going to be able to make it out alive. Can you imagine being, I mean, that's like Brady's age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. On April 21st, senior police investigators held a press conference to announce having apprehended about 20 suspects in the attacks of a total of nine people in Central Park two nights before and began to offer their theory of the attack and rape of the female jogger. Her name was withheld as a victim of a sex crime. And the police said up to 12 youths were believed to have attacked have attacked the jogger. The main suspects were a subgroup within the loose gang of 30 to 32 teenagers who had assaulted strangers in the park as part of an activity that the police said the teenagers referred to as wilding. New York City senior detectives said the term was used by the suspects when describing their actions to police. The police described the attacks as random and motiveless, saying they had terrorized people in the park. The account of the term wildling was soon disputed by investigative reporter Barry Michael Cooper, who said that it originated in a police detective's misunderstandings of the suspect's use of the phrase doing the wild thing, which were lyrics from Tone Lopes' hit song, Wild Thing. There were massive media coverage of the conference with the rape and beating of the female jogger, especially recounted in a dramatic inflammatory language. Normal police procedures stipulated that the names of criminal suspects under the age of 16 were to be withheld from the media and the public, but this policy was ignored when the names of the arrested juveniles were released to the press before any of them had been formally arraigned or indicted. For example, the name of Corey Wise, he later adopted uh, the use, I should say the 
for example, the name of Carrie Wise, he later adopted the use of Corey as his first name, was published on April 25th, 1989 in an article in the Philadelphia Daily News about the attack of the female jogger. That was like six days later. Right. By that time, more information had been published about the primary suspects in the rape who did not seem to satisfy typical profiles of perpetrators. Common factors had been ruled out. Reporters had found that some came from stable, financially secure homes. Police had ruled out drugs or robbery, and most had no actual criminal records. And on April 26, 1989, the New York Times published a cautionary editorial against the use of labels and a questioning why such, quote, well-adjusted youngsters could have committed such a savage crime. Uh, after the major media's decision to print the names, photos, and addresses of the juvenile suspects, they and their families received serious threats. Other residents living at the Schomburg Plaza, where four of the suspects lived, were also threatened. Because of this, editors of the City Sun and the Amsterdam News chose to use Maylee's name in their continuing coverage of the events. It's a train wreck. Yes. Well, those, so the City Sun and the Amsterdam News were both black owned and run newspapers so it was kind of a way of retro you know right and then that totally makes sense and i mean i get it yeah i mean the sad thing is you've got really two sets of victims exactly and i mean as heinous as the crime was on uh trisha maley i mean what happened to these five juveniles is almost as bad i mean Corey's accounts what happened to him in prison it's just it's Horrible. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking. It is. Reverend Calvin Butts of the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, who came to support the five suspects, said to the New York Times, the first thing you do in the United States of America when a white woman is raped is round up a bunch of black youths. And I think that's what happened here. Agreed. On May 1st, 1989, Donald Trump, a human pile of garbage, I have a second that emotion. Then a real estate magnet called for the return of the death penalty in full-page advertisements published in all four of the city's major newspapers. Trump said he wanted the criminals of every age who were accused of beating and raping a jogger in Central Park 12 days earlier to be afraid. The advertisement said in part, Mayor Koch has stated that hate and rancor should be removed from our hearts. I do not think so. I want to hate these muggers and murderers. They should be forced to suffer. Yes, Mayor Koch, I want to hate these murderers, and I always will. How can our great society tolerate the continued brutalization of its citizens by crazed misfits? Criminals must be told that their, and this is all in caps, civil liberties end when an attack on our safety begins. When he is arrested, I can't wait to make a sign. According to defendant Youssef Salam, quoted in a February 2016 article in The Guardian, Trump was the, quote, fire starter in 1989 as common citizens were being manipulated and swayed into believing that we were guilty. Salam and his family received death threats after papers ran Trump's full-page ad urging the death penalty. And the headline was literally, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. Doesn't sound familiar. And what a slap in the face to these men who they hadn't even been indicted or convicted yet right just ugh. speaking of indictments on may 10th 1989 the five youths were indicted with attempted murder and other charges in the attack on and rape of the female jogger their ages at the time 
Antron McCray again was 15. Kevin Richardson was 14. Yusef Salam was 15. Raymond Santana was 14. And Corey Wise was 16. Each of the youths pled not guilty. The families of Lopez, Richardson, and Salam were able to make the $25,000 bail imposed by the court. The two other youths under 16 were returned to a juvenile facility to be held there until trial. Classified as an adult at 16, Corey Wise was separated from the others from the first and held in an adult jail at Rikers Island until trial. Four of the five youths who were indicted for the rape lived in the Schomburg Plaza. Four of the five had confessed to police about other attacks in the park and other areas of the night of April 19th, including the assault and robbery of John Laughlin, which was the, um, the teacher, to which they said they were witnesses or participants. Salam's unsigned statement also covered the range of actions and crimes. According to New York Times, their accounts of these other attacks were accurate, unlike their confessions on the assault of the jogger. Only Wise made a statement about the different times and locations of the jogger attack, and detectives had taken him to the crime scene before he made his videotaped confession, so he knew where everything happened. Right. Each of the suspects had made different errors in time and place about the jogger attack in their confessions, with most placing it near the reservoir. None of the five said that they had raped the jogger, but each confessed to having been an accomplice to the rape. Each youth said that he had only helped restrain the jogger or touched her, while one or more others had raped her. Their confessions varied as to who they identified as having participated in the rape, including naming several youths who were never charged. And in his untaped confession, Salam claimed to have struck the jogger with a pipe at the beginning of the incident. Well, and they totally, like, led them oh, yeah. down the path, too. They're just like, well, you know, so was it Corey that did that? Or was it, you know, whoever did that? And, yeah. you know, all they had to say was yes or no. Although four suspects, all except Salam, confessed on videotape in the presence of a parent or guardian who had generally not been present during their initial interrogations, each of the four retracted their statements within weeks. Together, they claimed they had been intimidated, lied to, and coerced by policing into or by police into making false confessions. While the confessions were videotaped, the hours of interrogation that preceded the confessions were not. The, in 1990, the suspects indicted in the attack on a female jogger and other crimes were scheduled for trial. The prosecution arranged to try the defendants in the Maley case in two separate groups. This enabled them to control the order in which certain evidence would be introduced to the court. In the first trial, which began June 25th and ended on August 18, 1990, Defendants Antron McRae, Yusuf Salam, and Raymond Santana were tried. Each of the teenagers had his own defense counsel. The jury consisted of four white Americans, four black Americans, three Hispanic Americans, and one Asian American. Bailey testified at the trial, but her identity was not given to the court. None of the three defense attorneys cross-examined her. The jury deliberated for 10 days before rendering its verdict on August 18th. Each of the three youths was acquitted of attempted murder, but convicted of assault and rape of the female jogger and convicted of assault and robbery of John Laughlin. Salon and McRae were 15 years old and Santana was 14 at the time of the crime. As such, they were sentenced to the maximum allowed for ju juveniles, which was five to 10 years in a youth correctional facility. The second trial of Kevin Richardson and Corey Wise began October 22nd of 1990 and also lasted about two months, ending in December. Kevin Richardson, 14-year-old at the time of the crime, had been free on $25,000 bail before the trial. Assistant District Attorney Elizabeth Lederer had a lengthy opening statement and Wise broke down at the defense table after it, weeping and shouting that she had lied. 
he was removed temporarily from the courtroom. Richardson's defense counsel made a motion for a mistrial because of the potential effect on the jury, but the judge rejected it, and the trial proceeded. The defense attorneys noted that each youth had limited intellectual ability and said that neither was capable of preparing the written statements or videotaped confessions submitted by the prosecution as evidence. They contended that the confessions had been coerced from youths vulnerable to pressure because of their age and their intellectual capacity. Maylee testified at this trial again, and her name was not given in court, but this time one of the defense counsels, Wise's lawyer, cross-examined her. She later said in an interview, I'll tell you what, I didn't feel wonderful about the boys' defense attorneys, especially the one who cross-examined me. He was right in front of my face and in essence calling me a slut by asking questions like, when's the last time you had sex with your boyfriend? Wise's lawyer had also asked her whether she had ever been assaulted by men in her life, suggesting that a man she knew may have attacked her and implied that her injuries were not as severe as they had presented, which we all know that's bullshit too when the victim becomes the... Right. Yeah. Don't victim blame. Richardson was the only one of the five defendants to be convicted of attempted murder of Maley, in addition to sodomy and assault of her, and robbery and riot in the attack on John Laughlin, another jogger in the park. And he was sentenced to five to ten years in a juvenile facility. Wise was convicted of lesser charges of sexual abuse, assault, and riot in the attack on the female jogger and on Laughlin. Because of his age and the violent nature of the felony charge, he was tried and sentenced as an adult receiving five to 15 years in adult prison. After the verdict, Wise shouted at the prosecutor, you're going to pay for this. Jesus is going to get you. You made this up. According to an FBI expert who gave evidence at the trial, all five defendants could be excluded as being the man who had left the semen samples inside Maylee and on a sock. In total, 14 men were tested, including the defendants and Maylee's former boyfriend, and all were excluded. The semen belonged to another unidentified male. Years later, more advanced DNA testing also revealed that the hair in Richardson's clothes did not match the victim. Um, That's important to know because jurors who agreed to interviews after the trial said that they weren't convinced by the taped confessions, uh, that they were impressed by the physical evidence introduced by the prosecutor. The semen, the grass, the dirt, and then two hairs described as consistent with the victim's hair. So it wasn't like DNA or anything like that. It was just the fact that it was blonde hair. Four of the five youths appealed their convictions in the rape case the following year, but Santana did not appeal. Each of the convictions was upheld. Sentence each of them served were as follows. Youssef Salam served six years and eight months in juvenile detention from 1990 to 1996 and was released on parole. Raymond Santana served six years and eight months in juvenile detention from 1990 to 1996 and was also released on parole. In 1998, he violated his parole and was sentenced to three and a half to seven years in prison on drug charges. And then he was released and exonerated in 2002. Kevin Richardson served seven years in juvenile detention from 1990 to 1997 and was released on parole. Antron McCray was sentenced to five to 10 years in juvenile detention and he served six years from 1990 to 1996 and was released on parole. Corey Wise was sentenced to 6 to 15 years in prison on sexual abuse, assault, and riot. He served 13 years and 8 months in multiple state prisons. Rikers Island Prison in 1990, Attica Correctional Facility in 1991, Wendy State Penitentiary in 1993, and Auburn State Correctional Facility in 2001. 
In this prison, Wise met Matthias Reyes, who was later found to have actually assaulted and raped Meili. On appeal, Salam's attorneys charged that he had been held by police without access to parents or guardians. The majority appellate court decision upheld his conviction, noting that Salam had initially lied to police about his age, claiming to be 16 and backing up his claim with a forged transit pass that falsely identified him as being 16. This was the age at which a suspect could be questioned without a parent or guardian present. When Salam informed police of his true age, they allowed his mother to enter the interrogation room. In a 2016 Guardian article, defense counsel William Warren was reported saying that he thought Trump's ads in 1989 had played a role in securing conviction by the juries, saying that he poisoned the minds of, I just want people to listen to this, he poisoned the minds of many people who lived in New York City and who rightfully had a natural affinity for the victim. He noted, notwithstanding the jurors' assertions that they could be fair and impartial, some of them or their families had naturally have influenced, had to be affected by the inflammatory rhetoric in the ads. Mm. Yes. In 2019, inflammatory rhetoric, where, where have I heard that before where he's, he's involved? It's in the magic April. Yeah. In 2019, Time Magazine also assessed Trump's ads in 1989 as having adversely affected the case for the defendants. In 1991, New York Review of Books article, which was the first mainstream piece arguing that the five's convictions had been wrongful, Joan Didion suggested that the verdict stemmed from a cultural crisis, writing that so fixed were the emotions provoked by this case that the, the idea that there could have been for even one juror even a moment's doubt in the state's case seemed to many in the city bewildering, almost unthinkable. The attack on the jogger had by then passed into narrative, and the narrative was about what was wrong with the city and about its solution. The four youngest of the five convicted defendants each served between six and seven years in juvenile facilities. Richardson, Salam, and Santana attended classes. Each earned a GED and also completed an associate's degree while there. Richardson and Salam were released in 1997. Afterwards, Salam talked about how important family was. He was part of an Islamic community and served as a spiritual leader of his youth facility, but talked about how important his mother's visits had been. He was held at a juvenile facility in upstate New York, about five miles from the Canadian border and hours from New York City, but she came to see him three times a week. Wise had to serve all of his time in adult prison and encountered so much personal violence that he asked to stay in isolation for extended periods of time. He was held at four different prisons, having asked for transfers in the hope of improving his situation. He was released in August of 2002, the last of the five men to leave prison. Through this period, each of the five continued to maintain their innocence in the rape and attack of Meili, including at hearings before parole boards. While they acknowledged witnessing or participating in other wrongdoing in the park, they each maintain innocence in the attack of Meili. In 2001, convicted serial rapist and murderer Mateus Reyes was serving a life sentence in New York State. He had never been identified as a suspect in the Central Park attack or on Meili, although he had been at large during this time. Reyes was believed to have raped another woman in the same area of the park during the day on April 17th, two days before the attack on Meili. Initially, the Meili case was investigated as a homicide, and the April 17th rape was investigated as a rape assault, which resulted in a lack of comparison of the DNA recovered in the two cases. 
The NYPD did not have a DNA database until 1994, and after that, detectives and prosecutors had access to common information about DNA from evidence and taken from suspects in certain crimes. During the summer of 1989, Reyes raped four more women, killing one, and was interrupted after robbing a fifth. In 2001, Reyes met Wise when they were held at the Auburn Correctional Facility in upstate New York. In 2002, Reyes told officials that on the night of April 19, 1989, he had assaulted and raped a female jogger. He was 17 years old at the time of the assault and said that he committed a loan. Reyes was then working at an East Harlem convenience store on 3rd Avenue and 102nd Street and living in a van on the street. District Attorney Robert Morgenthau appointed a team led by Assistant District Attorney Nancy Ryan and Peter Casalaro to investigate the case based on Reyes' confession and a review of evidence. Reyes provided officials with a detailed account of the attack, details of which were corroborated by other evidence which the police held. And in addition, his DNA matched the DNA evidence at the scene, confirming that he was the sole source of the semen found in and on the victim, to a factor of one in six billion people. In announcing these facts, Morgenthau also said that the perpetrator had tied up Maylie with her t-shirt in a distinctive fashion that Reyes used again on later victims and crimes for which he was actually convicted. Based on interviews and other evidence, the team believed that Reyes had acted alone. The rape appeared to have taken place in the Northwoods area after the main body of the 30 teenagers had moved well to the south, and the timeline reconstruction of events made it unlikely that he was joined by any of the defendants. In addition, Reyes was not known to have been associated with any of the five indicted defendants. Reyes was not prosecuted for the rape of Maylie because the statute of limitations had passed. At the time of his confession, Reyes had been convicted and sentenced to life in state prison for raping and robbing four other women in the summer of 1989, murdering one of them and robbing another. And in a plea deal, he pleaded guilty to the top counts in each of the five cases. Based on the newly discovered evidence, each of the five men who had been convicted of charges related to the rape of Maley filed motions to have their conviction set aside and for the court to grant whatever further relief may be just and proper. As a result of his team's review, Reyes' confession and DNA testing that confirmed he was the sole source of semen, District Attorney Robert Morgenthau recommended vacating the convictions of the five defendants who had been convicted and sentenced to prison. Supporters of the five defendants again claimed that their confessions had been coerced by police. During the reinvestigation, the DA's office questioned the veracity of their confessions because of their many inconsistencies and their lack of correspondence to established facts in the case. His office wrote, a comparison of the statements revealed troubling discrepancies. The accounts given by the five defendants differed from one another on the specific details of virtually every major aspect of the crime. Who initiated the attack, who knocked the victim down, who undressed her, who struck her, who held her, who raped her, what weapons were used in the course of the assault, and when in the sequence of events the attack actually took place. In many other respects, the defendants' statements were not corroborated by, consistent with, or explanatory of objective independent evidence, and some of what they said was simply contrary to established fact. In addition to the confessions, the report noted that a reconstruction of the events in the park has bared a significant conflict, one that is hinted at but not explored in the depths of the trial. At the time, the jogger was believed to have been attacked. The teenager was said to be involved either as spectators or participants in muggings elsewhere in the park. The report also noted, ultimately, there proved to be no physical or forensic evidence recovered at the scene or from any other person or effects of the victim, which connected the defendants to the attack on the jogger, 
or could establish how many perpetrators actually participated. In light of the extraordinary circumstances of the case, Morgenthau recommended that the court also vacate the convictions for the other crimes that night, such as robbery or assault, to which the defendants had confessed. His rationale was that the defendants' confessions to other crimes were made at the same time and in the same statements as those related to the attack on Maley. Had the newly discovered evidence been available at the original trials, it might have made the jurors question whether any part of the defendants' confessions were trustworthy. In addition, the defendants had already served more time than they likely would have received based on those charges alone. And they were already all out of prison when this happened. So they'd already served all of their sentences before any of this was vacated. So uh, it's not like it allowed them to be uh, released early. At the time and later, Morgenthau's recommendation to vacate the convictions was strongly opposed by Linda Fairstein, who had directed the original prosecution as well as by lead detectives on the case and some other members of the police department. What? They didn't want to admit that they were wrong? Who would do that? I will have to say, though, um, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but when I went to interview for a scholarship in 1994 uh, for the college that I ended up going to, one of the questions they asked me was, if you could have dinner with three people, who would you pick and why? And I picked Mother Teresa as I wanted to know how she could be so selfless. I picked my father just because he had passed away when I was a child. And I picked Linda Fairstein because I was going to, at the time I wanted to go to law school and she was, uh, you know, reviled as this hero for under intense scrutiny, you know, convicting these five young men. And okay. here she was the villain the whole time. Obviously, education and other evidence has come to light, which is no, which has made me aware that I was a complete moron <laughs> at the time. But yeah, at the, that's, yeah, it was horrible when I found that out. And I remembered that I'd given that answer. It's all right. The five defendants convictions were vacated by the New York Supreme Court on December 19th, 2002. As Morgenthau recommended, uh, the order vacated the convictions for all of the crimes in which the defendants had been convicted. This also enabled them uh, from being removed from New York State's sex offender registry uh, because they had all had difficulty getting employment or renting housing because they were registered sex offenders. That's part of the reason why Santana said that he started selling drugs is because he couldn't find a job. But his attorney said that his sentence had been greater in that case because of his earlier conviction in the Maley attack. Lawyers for the five defendants repeated their assessment that Trump's advertisements in 1989 had inflamed public opinion about the case. And after Reyes confessed to the crime and said he acted alone, defense counselor Michael W. Warren said, I think Donald Trump at the very least owes a real apology to this community and to the young men and their family. Trump did not, yeah, Trump did not apologize. And still hasn't. Yes. I, he has actually doubled down on it. Yeah, he has. In 2003, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana Jr., and Antoine McRae sued the city of New York for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. The other two defendants later joined a lawsuit. Under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, under his administration, the city refused. There's a reason why he didn't uh, do well in the primaries. The city refused to pursue a settlement for the lawsuits based on the conclusion that the defendants had had a fair trial. Speaking at a news conference in 2002, Bloomberg spoke of his confidence regarding the actions of the police department. As far as I can tell, the NYPD did exactly what they should have done a number of years ago. 
when the terrible incident took place. If we see any reason to think that we acted inappropriately, Police Commissioner Kelly will certainly take appropriate measures, but so far we believe that the NYPD did act appropriately. However, in 2011, Celeste Colvid, then New York City's Executive Assistant Corporation Council for Public Safety, that's the title. Say that three times real fast. Gave a public statement on behalf of the city in 2011 after receiving public criticism from Councilman Charles Barron for failing to resolve the lawsuits. The charges against the plaintiffs and other youths were based on abundant probable cause, including confessions that withstood intense scrutiny and full and fair pretrial hearings and at two lengthy public trials. Nothing unearthed since the trials, including Mateus Reyes's connection to the attack on the jogger, changes that fact. So they had to wait for a change in administration. Uh, when Mayor Bill de Blasio who actually included that on his uh, mayoral uh, campaign that he would resolve the matter. The city settled in 2014 with the five defendants for $41 million. At a press conference, de Blasio made a public statement about the settlements. An injustice was done, and we have a moral obligation to respond to that injustice. I think that the way we've proceeded with was understanding that had to be rectified in a way that made sense, in a way that was mindful and careful, but I think we're on the right track. And I think the moral issue is quite clear and obviously was made clear by the court's decision in recent years. In 2016, the five men received an additional award of $3.9 million against the state of New York for additional damages caused by the economic and emotional devastation caused by their incarceration. So in 2014, after New York had settled the wrongful conviction suit, some figures returned to the media to dispute the court's 2002 decision to vacate the convictions because, of course, also retired New York City detective Edward Conlin, who had been involved with the case, hmm, in an article published uh, in the Daily Beast, quoted incriminatory statements allegedly made by some of the youths after they had been taken into custody by police. Similarly, two doctors who had treated Maylee after the attack said in 2014, after the settlement, that some of her injuries appeared to be inconsistent with Reyes's claims that he had acted alone. But a forensic pathologist who testified at the 1990 trial said that it was impossible to tell from the victim's injuries how many people had participated in the assault, as did New York City's chief medical examiner in 2002. And obviously, Maylee has no memory of uh, the attack. And at the time of the settlement, said that she believed there had been more than one attacker and expressed her regret that the case had been settled. Uh, she went back to work at the investment bank, and then in April of 2003, she confirmed her identity to media when she published a memoir entitled I Am the Central Park Jogger, and then she began a career as an inspirational speaker. Antron McRae was the first to move away from New York City. He is married, has six children, and lives and works in Georgia. Kevin Richardson is married and lives with his family in New Jersey. And according to the Innocence Project, he has acted as an advocate with Santana and Salam to reform New York State's criminal justice practices, advocating methods to prevent false confessions and eyewitness misidentifications. Among their goals was required videotaping of interrogations by law enforcement. And such a law was passed by New York State Legislature and went into effect on April 1st, 2018. Yusuf Salam has been an advocate for reform in the criminal justice system and prisons, particularly for juveniles. He has spoken against practices leading to false confessions and eyewitness misidentifications, which can lead to wrongful convictions. He also works as a motivational speaker, which he came here right after COVID started and spoke at Augustana. So living in Georgia, he is married with 
10 children. He serves as a board member of the Innocence Project. Good for him. Yeah. As noted, Salam was an advocate for the law passed in New York in 2017, requiring videotaped of abused subjects and all custodial interrogations for serious crimes. And in 2016, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from my president, Barack Obama. Yay! Raymond Santana also lives in Georgia, not far from McRae. He serves as a criminal justice advocate with the Innocence Project and spoke in New York to audiences with Richardson and Salon to advocate passage of the New York State Justice Reform Law that passed in 2017. In 2018, he started a clothing company, Park Madison NYC, named for the avenues near his former home in New York. Some of his merchandise commemorates the men of the Central Park Five. Corey Wise still lives in New York City, where he works as a speaker and justice reform advocate. He changed his first name from Carrie after being released from prison. He donated $190,000 of his settlement to the chapter of the Innocence Project at the University of Colorado Law School to aid other wrongfully convicted people to gain exoneration. They renamed the project in his honor to the Corey Wise Innocence Project. So that is the very long case of the Central Park Five. That's and, a lot. Yes. Like I said, Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, uh, and her husband, David McMahon, did the Central Park Five, which is a documentary film about this case, which I highly recommend. But the movie that, based off of this, it's more like a docu-series. I don't know. No, it's, it's kind of a, a mini-series. Kind of yeah, I was going to say like a mini-series. It's kind yeah. of, it kind of is like a docu-series, but it's a mini-series, dramatic uh, interpretation. interpretation. Uh, on May 31st, 2019, When They See Us, a four-episode miniseries was released on Netflix. Ava DuVernay co-wrote and directed the drama. Uh, it's released in wide viewing on Netflix, promi- uh, promoted renewed discussion of the case, the criminal justice system, and the lives of the five men. I watched this literally the day it came out. Uh, I didn't watch all four parts because I had to take breaks. In between them, mm-hmm. just emotionally, I had to take breaks. And there's the, I'm trying to think of it's episode three that deals with Corey's uh, imprisonment in particular, which mm-hmm. is horrible, horrible. to watch. Yeah. It is horrible. Um, the actor who plays him, though, is is amazing. He He's the only one of the five who played himself as a child uh, and as an adult. Uh, but yeah, he was amazing. It is one of those things that I watched and I'm so glad I watched it and I recognize the merit and all of the care and thought that went into it, but I can't ever watch it again. Like for yeah. my own, for my own yeah. well-being, I can't ever watch it again. I, um, I feel that way about the, uh, documentary Dear Zachary. I haven't watched it, but I read, um, no, I listened to the true crime obsessed episode about that particular yeah. one. I can't That's imagine. a, that was a one and done. Yeah, as well. I feel that way about... And I even think it was a one and done when I watched the Central Park 5 documentary. Oh, yeah. I also, that was a one, It you know, it's like, I can, I can recommend it, that it's a, a really great documentary, but yeah. I won't watch it again. Yeah. What movie? It's Tom Hanks and Matt Damon. What's that movie? Catch Me If You Can? No, no, no. The war movie. Oh, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Like, that's only, that's also a one and done. Yeah. I can so, see where that would be yeah. a one and done too. But yeah, if you haven't watched it, I recommend watching it on Netflix. It, um, you just, I would give yourself time to do it and I would recommend getting emotionally prepared before you watch it. Uh, I mean, the attention to detail, like if you look at some of the interrogation videos and then also like Ava's interpretation of those videos, it's down to like 
there's a can of Pepsi on the desk and it's turned this specific direction, the clothes that they're wearing and uh, all of this stuff. Obviously, after it came out, uh, Linda Fairstein and, and the several of the police were very angry about it, saying that it wasn't accurate, but F those guys. Yeah, they didn't like how they were portrayed. They were portrayed, yeah. So that is the Central Park Five case in the movie When They See Us. Yes. A uh, brief uh, shout out this week to uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. I haven't gotten to watch it yet. No, not yet. No. Um, Joseph D'Angelo was sentenced life in this prison. week, life in prison, uh, for I think 13 of the charges against him. The victim statements being read were very, very impactful. powerful yeah. and very impactful. Yes. The fact, though, that that motherfucker um, portrays himself to be weak and, and, and feeble. weak and feeble in court. And then the Sacramento district attorney released uh, footage of him in his cell. Climbing around like climbing, a monkey. Climbing yeah. around like a monkey. That man is not weak and feeble. Like I said, I hope Michelle Speaking of haunts human garbage. him. For the rest of his days, fuck that guy. Yeah, and wait, is the last episode aired? Yes. Okay, because I was waiting for the last episode yeah. to air, and so, then I was going to do the free week trial yeah, so that I could watch all of them. It's done, because um, tonight starts the new um, crime docuseries about Nexium. The drug? <laughs> no, what's the the sex cult? The um, The sex cult that the chick from... The Smallville oh, was in. Oh, I thought they okay. were, that was called. I thought it was called Nexium. I think that's a drug. I could be wrong though. I think it's a sleeping drug. It is. I think some sort of a drug too. But I can't <laughs> think of what it's called. I watched a special on E about that. Alice and Mac is that yeah, her name? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're starting a series about that tonight. Oh, nice. Um, and then on Thursday this week is um, documentary about the action park in New Jersey which is like this water park slash fun world that people like died and like terrible things happened there. And oh. it's supposed to be pretty good as well. Huh. A class action park. Nice. A little play on words there. Oh no, I got it. I got <laughs> it. All right. Well, thanks for sticking through. I know this was a hard and yeah, a long this was one. A long oh, God. I just one. keep setting myself up. It's okay. <laughs> you like the hard ones. <laughs> That's what she said. No, that's right. Because I said it was a hard and a long one. So yeah. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, you can find us on all of your podcatchers. Uh, if you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. We like five-star reviews. And you can find us on Instagram at Based on a True Crime Story Podcast. Yes. Because I changed it. <laughs> and we are on Twitter at, I don't know, Based on a True Crook One. Yeah. There you go, Crip One. And then we are on Gmail at based on a true crime story at Gmail. Yep. And we're on Facebook. Facebook. And I am currently contemplating starting a TikTok account for this particular podcast. Oh Lord. Where I like give one minute uh like recaps of certain crimes and then the music or the movies that attach to it, whether or not we've actually covered them on the oh. podcast or not. So Okay. I'll let, my, you, I'll let you all handle, my free time. I'll let you handle that. <laughs> and then I'll do whoa. No, <laughs> the whoa. <sighs> all right. So till two weeks. Yes. We promise we'll be better about it. I will stop taking incorrect medication. And going on. And going on trips. Trips. Because <laughs> now I'm broke. Yes. So.
All right, until next time, bye. Bye.